Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on London Radio. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to this month's episode of Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and Buildings on Air is, of course, the show where we talk about architecture and left politics, sometimes more of one and less of the other. We've got a really fantastic show lined up for you all today. Um, We start off the show with a conversation with Michael Roberts, uh, the Marxist economist, um, author of many books, uh, including The Great Recession, uh, another one called The Long Depression, Marxism and the Global Crisis of Capitalism, and most recently, Marx 200, a review of Marx's economics 200 years after his birth. Um, I'm super happy to have Michael on the show. Uh, I love his blog. It's thenextrecession.wordpress.com. I think it's some of the best contemporary economic analysis um, out there today. And um, the fact that we got him on Buildings on Air is, is amazing. Um, He's also a football fan, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. to me is personally <laughs> riveting. Yes, it is. He's a Queen's Park Rangers. So it's just delightful to meet another person from London who's not a Chelsea fan. Uh, that, that to me just made my day. So. <laughs> there you go. Yes, it's a little known fact about producer Jamie. Um, uh, that 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 you used to work for uh, uh, football in in the world of football broadcasting. Yes, we're Sky, Fox, <laughs> ESPN for for almost twenty five years. So. Yeah, and yes. and and now and now, uh, and now I'm here. And now you're here, making sure that uh, we sound good. That's right. Yeah, and uh, picking the music. Uh, That's right. And I've got some good stuff for the Great Recession. <laughs> Ooh, you just wait. <laughs> Fantastic. So after we chat with Michael, uh, we'll be doing our regular mailbag segment with Anne Louie and Craig Reschke of Future Firm, where we answer your listener questions about architecture. Um, today's going to be a longer mailbag segment, and um, I think a per- especially nerdy one. I think that might be the, th- the theme of this show is nerdy stuff. We're going to get in really deep in, in, into economics and, and nerdy building things. And air conditioning and, problems. Oh, mm-hmm. most definitely. You know I have some air conditioning questions that. lined up. But, uh, you know, buildings on air. We make the nerdy stuff uh, fun because it's, it's, you got to know it. You got to know mm-hmm. it, and it might as well be fun. Um, and then after the mailbag, uh, Jamie and I will powwow for a little bit about some urban planning stuff happening in our fair neighborhood of sure. Chicago, Bridgeport. Um, and and that's that's going to be the August show. That's the show. Cool. Um, yeah. So we are on the line with Michael. Michael, how are you doing? Good afternoon to you and good evening here in, in the UK where uh, I, I'm looking forward to hearing about the air conditioning because we have <laughs> extreme temperatures across Europe and in the UK we're hitting... Uh, 85, 90 Fahrenheit at the moment every day, uh, which is, of course, if you can imagine an English summer, is pretty unusual. Yeah. So, we can know about air con is suddenly on our screens. There we go. Yeah, and it's a scorcher here in Chicago. I'm, uh, of course, wearing my, my black pants and dark gray shirt, like a, like a good architect, but um, mostly for non-architect reasons, just because I, I don't like to have to separate out uh, my laundry. So. <laughs> like, like every other person in the arts, you just have one color and it's black exactly yeah, yeah exactly yeah. um but michael I'm, I'm super happy to have you on the show um I, you know I've, I've i've been an admirer of your your blog for for quite some time and i'm constantly sending out uh, articles um <laughs> to to <laughs> friends and, and comrades and being like check this out um I think, um, you know, I, I, I wanted to ask you on the show to talk about the Great Recession. Um, and, you know, it, it, it kind of has its origins in the housing crisis. And I think architects in particular have uh, a lot of PTSD around the recession. It hit the building industry particularly hard. Um, and I think actually is, is a kind of underlying cause of a lot of sort of um, radical organizing we're seeing coming out of the profession at this present moment. Um, because everyone kind of has 
an awareness of the ways in which uh, capitalist economics and, and, and uh, structures and crises um, kind of uh, uh, impact impact everyone's day-to-day life. Um, I, but I, I also think um, that even though people have this kind of innate sense of uh, how they're getting screwed, for lack of a better word, um, you know, g- really getting into the sort of economic underpinnings uh, um, is, is really important. Um, and so I guess, like, like I told you, I, I think when I first asked you on the show, I usually set the table with a kind of big and unfair question <laughs> and see, see what we pick up and, and take the conversation from there. Um, so maybe you can start by kind of telling us about what the 2008 recession was, why we're still feeling the effects of it today, and what a kind of uh, Marxist lens of analysis uh, can tell us that um, – a usual uh, economic lens cannot. Well, I think I'd start by saying, Kiefer, that um, the Great Recession, as it's called now, which was a big uh, collapse in production and investment and employment, and people lost their homes as well as their jobs from the period of about 2008 to the middle of 2009, not just in the US of A, but across uh, Europe too. And, and it's probably, we called it the Great Recession because it was so global. Mm. Um, none of us have much of a life, anybody is alive in the, in the Great Depression of the 1930s. But, and that was great because it was very deep, but it wasn't as global as the Great Recession. Mm. That was really wide, covering just about every country, certainly the major ones across the world, with the same phenomenon of a collapse in production and investment and employment and jobs. But as you say, it, it, it started with a housing collapse in the US in 2008. So the first thing I would say is that the Great Recession isn't unique, I would argue, as a Marxist economist. There are regular and recurring crises or slumps in production and investment in capitalism. Capitalism is a system where we produce for profit, not for what people need. That's a byproduct. Obviously, people need have to need things. Otherwise, <laughs> Uh, companies would not be able to sell anything, but they won't sell you anything eventually if you don't if they don't make a profit out of it. It's a profit-making system, a money-making system, uh, with the the, pro- the byproduct of what you need perhaps coming to you, depending on how much money you've got. <laughs> uh, but that profit-making system doesn't work harmoniously. It doesn't work steadily and growing uh, contrary to the views of of orthodox. Uh, mainstream economics. It grows in a series of booms and slumps, of cycles, if you like, in production and investment. And these recur, at least in the 20th 20th century and now into the 21st century, normally around about eight to 10 years in a cycle of boom and slump. And so the Great Recession wasn't unique in that sense. What was different about it was it was hugely bigger than we've Mm. seen in previous slumps and since the 1930s and wider, as I say. And the reasons for that are are twofold. First of all, there's the underlying process under capitalism where profits begin to decline. Uh, Capitalists try really hard to exploit us, to screw as much profit out of us as they can at work, keep our wages down, uh, keep us in the position where they can get the maximum amount of profit out of the worker. But they find over a period of time and it's a theoretical argument that Marxists explain, 
uh, as they expand and mechanize the economy more, they find that they cannot sustain the same level of profitability that they had. And there's a tendency to drive that profitability down over a period of time. And then they get into a problem of not being able to make a profit out of investment. We're not in that position here in 2018, mm. but we were as we approached 2005, 2006 in the US and other countries, profitability was beginning to fall. In that period before, there'd been a massive expansion of credit and debt, uh, particularly for the first time in banks and uh, other financial houses, providing mortgages at 100%, no deposit, massive expansion of mortgage debt for consumers and householders. And as we know, the, the phrase was at the time of subprime mortgages, which were mortgages which were given to people who really weren't in the position to afford them if there was a sharp rise in interest rates. And these were some of our most vulnerable and people struggling to, to make a living. And they found that they could get a home for a brief period of time because they were told they didn't have to pay any interest at all and hardly any deposit. But then suddenly that situation changed as uh, incomes rose and these people started to lose their jobs. Then we got a collapse in that housing market, which, of course, uh, as you architects and, and in the building and structure in as you know, was most severe, a really yeah. severe slump in uh, housing. But that spread internationally because all those mortgages, which all those banks and other mortgage lenders in the U.S. had lent to householders, was redistributed through derivatives and other sorts of financial tricks to the rest of the world. People in banks in Europe were buying these mortgages in various packages. And so when these mortgages became were defaulted on, weren't, weren't able to be delivered because of the decline in profitability in capitalism, this spread across Europe and elsewhere. And we had this domino effect across all these banks beginning to collapse. And probably one of the biggest financial crashes in the history of uh, modern economies took place in 2008-9. Ten year, almost 10 years ago, we had the Lehman's crash uh, and uh, many of the banks in Wall Street going to the wall. So this was a, a major development which makes it so different from previous slumps. And as you pointed out, Kiefer, it's now taken nearly 10 years to struggle out of that slump. And it really hasn't really come out of that. We could deal with that perhaps in, a, in why that's the case when we look ahead. But that the Great Recession certainly was great. And it was a very deep recession and a very wide one. And that is uh, what makes it so interesting to understand. And because it was the kernel of the trigger of it was in housing and construction. That's also another thing, which perhaps I could also discuss why uh, the construction cycle came along in that way. Yeah. And, and I'm also curious, um, uh, to to know about why, why even we, we get told all of the time, and if you if you look at the news, um, everyone's like the economy is doing so well, right? <laughs> and uh, but but I think that most people haven't felt those effects, and and people mm. still still feel uh, that wages are low, and that um, there are all kinds of issues, even as there are all kinds of positive headlines continuously about why things are so terrific. Um, so I'm curious if you can talk about that and. and and then yeah. it would be totally terrific to get into why exactly housing was yeah. the kind of thing um, and, and what's peculiar about the housing market um, that made it yeah. such a kind of, uh, uh, I, I don't know, flashpoint. Well, in the last 10 years, I, I describe the last 10 years not as a normal recovery. Mm -hmm. Normally, in these booms and slumps that I've talked about, you have the slump, then the capitalists lay off a load of workers 
they close down factories or they merge together and they create conditions for more profitable production. And then we get a new cycle upwards, which lasts say, eight to 10 years and then we go down again. Mm. But this time, what we've seen is a very, very weak recovery. Mm. Uh, the recovery in the, in the US has been about in real output each year for the nation, about 2% a year, which I can tell you is about less than two thirds of what the average used to be before 2008. It's a very weak recovery. Hmm. Uh, now, it's true that employment has come back after nearly 10 years and unemployment is now at a very low level. But I'm sure all your listeners know that the people who are getting these new jobs are not getting jobs which were the high paid jobs that perhaps they held before. Hmm. They're getting really low paid jobs in conditions where there aren't much skills and training prospects or promotion prospects. And maybe sometimes they're taking two of these jobs a day in order to uh, make ends meet. Mm -hmm. So we now have a higher employment economy, but a very low wage economy. There was a survey done by the World Economic Forum, which is a big international organization, when all the big wigs of the world turn up each year to uh, discuss things. And they, they have a research body and they produced a research which showed that the vast majority of the average person in Europe, in the US and in Asia, Japan and so on, have not returned to the level of incomes, the average people have not returned to the level of incomes they had in 2007 before this great crash. So for them, as you say, Kiefer, there's been no real improvement. Also, they said that people of my age, uh, what used to be called the baby boomers, and people who are now re retiring or retired, uh, their children will never have the same level of real incomes that uh, we've had in the golden age of when we were working back in the 60s and 70s and making our money. And they'll, they'll never return to that. This, this long depression has created conditions where things will never be quite as good as they were before. And that's a real damaging and uh, indictment, I think, of the way that the system operates in providing the needs of people. And, and we're only talking here, Kiefer, about the more advanced economies. Yeah. The situation for the two or three billion uh, people, adults who live in other countries where there's virtually no prospect of growth and improvement, where they're continually facing and now a whole new range of crises are developing, and what we call, used to be called the third world, uh, and is now, in, economists, by the way, call it emerging economies, Kiefer, mm. as though they're emerging. I'm afraid they're not merging. <laughs> Most of them are submerging and staying underwater yeah. and struggling to, to get any breath. So the vast majority of the world's population, particularly children and, and so on, in the other parts of the world, are still struggling very badly. And this great recession and long depression that's followed has not improved their condition. In fact, in many places, it's, it's worse. For example, just one finished point, the sub-Saharan sub Africa, which is the fastest growing population area in the world, has actually fallen further behind than it was in 2008 from countries like the US and Europe. It's, it's going backwards, not forwards, uh, as a result of the last 10 years. That's a tragic situation. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, and 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 so it, it's funny because what what what's important to understand here is that you know the housing part was the kind of flashpoint, and that's it. These are these are bigger interconnected systems, and I think uh, one of the one of the things that I really appreciate about about your writing is you talk about how um, most economists are kind of mystified by crisis, <laughs> uh, mainstream yes. economists, and and they they don't have a good explanation for it. Um, and I think I. I remember a, a blog post where, where you talked about um, several of these folks being 
marched in front of the U.S. Congress for a kind of explanation, <laughs> and then yes. and then and then uh, giving a resounding well, if you remember, shrug. Uh, Alan Greenspan used to be the head of the Federal Reserve Bank just before the crash. Um, then it was Ben Bernanke uh, after him, and now we have uh, Jeff Powell. But um, Alan Greenspan in the early two thousands was regarded as the guru. He was called the guru in the mainstream papers like the Wall Street Journal and, and New York Times and so on, because he was such a hero. He created the conditions in the US where everybody got a home, everybody had a job, everything was expanding. The stock market was dancing to a high tune, which of course it is again now, but it was then. And we had uh, everything was fa absolutely fabulous, thanks to Alan Greenspan. Then we had the crash. And as you say, Keith, he was called before Congress to explain what had happened. And he said, well, I'm totally shocked, he said. I do not understand what's happened. I've been 40 years thinking about this, and I cannot explain it. It's a chance in a billion, he said, that this has happened, uh, as though he had not noticed all the other slumps that had taken place in the, in the past uh, uh, of the 20th century and into the 21st century. He couldn't explain it. Uh, another rather amusing, if it wasn't so sad, situation was when our Queen of England, um, in uh, 2009, at the depth of this uh, slump, went to the London School of Economics, which is like the epitome of uh, proper orthodox economics, to meet all the heads of the uh, LSE, as it's called. And when she walked into the door, she said, why did it happen? Tell me why it happened. And they looked at her completely nonplussed. They weren't expecting this five foot nothing woman in a hat to ask them this question and uh, they were unable to reply but they put they pulled themselves together and two days later they wrote a letter to her which they published in which they said well we've thought about it and all us eminent and very clever people have thought about it and we decided we have no idea why <laughs> so that is the state of uh, mainstream modern economics and i would argue that we we the heterodox, or the people who don't agree with this orthodoxy, including Marxist economists, have a, had a much better understanding of why it happened and what happened and what's going to happen. Right, right. And it, and it has to do with the tendency of the rate of profit to fall and all those things that you outlined earlier. Yeah. Um, Partly that, and, and also the, the huge, uh, which we can perhaps discuss, the huge rise in debt, particularly private sector debt, corporations and household debt, which leads a huge burden on the people when they can no longer pay it. Corporations in that slump saw their profits go and couldn't pay it. So banks in particular went to the wall because they saw defaulting mortgages and housing. This, and I suspect that we shall see the next slump, which we were well overdue for, we're coming up to 10 years now, um, will take place when we see some of these corporations that are supposedly making loads of money now, suddenly find that they're not so profitable when interest rates and other costs of borrowing start rising. Sure. Yeah. So is that what it is about sort of housing as a as a as a commodity? I mean, we really do treat it as a commodity in this kind of moment. Um, you know, these are things that require kind of huge, huge amounts of capital. Build, buildings, unlike anything else, require huge amounts of investment to put together. Um, and, and so they're, they're kind of always uh, intertwined with debt. Um, is, yes. is that is that the reason for it is. It's a long-term investment, as you, as you know. Bit, I mean, you could say factories and corporations are as well, and offices and all the rest of it. Yeah. But structures, in particular, of the residential structures, but commercial structures too, uh, 
are expensive, they require a lot of capital, and therefore they require credit usually in advance. They can't be raised just from cash beforehand, saved up. Uh, a lot of debt goes into developers in order to build these things. In fact, a lot of work has been done by economists, not just left economists, who looked at these questions, and they looked at the structure of the debt that's involved in construction, and they found that on the whole, the rents or the returns you can get back, where now we're talking about money-making out of construction here sure. for the moment, uh, the the rent you can get out of that or the return you can get out of that, it nearly, normally takes around about 18 years to get the return back on your investment in, say, a residential property or even a commercial property. Mm. So surprise, surprise, Kiefer, there appears to be a cycle, an 18-year <laughs> cycling construction, so that you get a boom, it goes on for 16, 17 years, then you get a nasty slump in, in construction prices and uh, the value of uh, real estate for one or two years, and then the cycle begins again. And if you, if uh, I could show, a, I'd love to show a graph to, to your readers, but we can't do that on radio. But if you <laughs> we saw can the put graph it in, the, show in notes. the case of the US, I was just looking at it uh, this morning, that you can see that uh, the, we had a slump in the US uh, housing market, not too severe in the US, but in other countries heavier, in 1991. And then 18 years later, we've had this massive housing crash in the US 2009-10. That would suggest to you, by the way, that we're now in a boom in the housing market. Well, it's recovering. If you look at the data, it's been recovering, uh, but it's still got some way to go. But probably it will go on for another five or six years. So the next slump on that basis, if you work it out for yourself, will be around <laughs> about 2027, um, which it will start at about 2025. So we've still got maybe six or seven years of relatively uh, rising housing prices. But that doesn't help all the people who lost their jobs back into and their homes back in 2008-9 and it doesn't help those people who've seen a dramatic fall in their house prices in the meantime going into what is called negative equity and of course back in 1991 it was commercial property that went to the wall and the savings in loans banks um, mm. who were, went bust uh, because of that so we're going to see another slump in construction and housing. Maybe not yet, maybe another five years or so, but it will come and there is a cycle there just like there is elsewhere. That's great. I've got I've got a few years left to uh, uh, bank my savings <laughs> before I uh, before I have to quit. Um. But I would say, um, Keith, I think the main point is what you started off with is that why should we have an absolute basic human need of somewhere to live, a home to be penned on the cycle of profit and slumps in production and uh, credit and debt. Why right. should the system be organized in that way? This is a basic social need, housing, along with education, health, transport, and so on. These are things that should be public services. Absolutely. We should be delivering uh, not commodities for, for, for sale and profit, but, but things that people need, houses, homes, buildings. And this would require basically state investment state production. In back in just after the Second World War in Europe, probably, I don't know if it happened in the US, but it may have done in parts, there was a massive housing program that took place after the Second World War. And this was conducted by the state through the local uh, uh, counties and through the states. They built state housing projects, good quality homes, not just uh, rubbish, replaced the old slums that were privately owned and created a whole new state sector for people's who, co who couldn't afford uh, what maybe middle and upper class people can afford in, in the price of a home. And that, that process transformed the lives 
of millions of people across Europe in doing that. And it's still the case in places like Germany and so on. Yes. I'm afraid in the UK we wiped all that out under the Thatcher era of the 1980s. All those uh, state project council homes were sold off. And do you know, this is the staggering thing, Kiefer, all that I think it was more than two million homes were sold off, maybe more. Now, two thirds of those homes are owned by private landlords charging extremely high rents to the people who used to live in them. <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it makes me think about, um, uh, you know, sometimes I think that we have the most incompetent uh, managerial and <laughs> bourgeois elite of, of the last, since, since the, the advent of capital. Uh, but, but also maybe this can be chalked up to what, you know, Marxists would call the, the balance of class forces, right? Uh, which is to say that, you know... It, uh, under the sustained assault of the left in the last 30 years, um, these people don't have to worry about um, housing, housing workers or giving them a good quality of life uh, or, uh, you know, the, the fact that housing um, uh, can be kind of com commodified. Um, you know, it might have been in the interests of, of a ruling elite in, in uh, earlier decades. To, to care more about the reproduction of labor um, by providing yep. social housing um, than, than it is right now. Um, it just, just well, it's a short-sighted yeah. policy, as you say. Yeah. Um, but, of course, um, on the whole, um, the, those that have run our society, the top 1% or even smaller, the billionaires who are now, uh, most of whom sit in your current U.S. administration, sure. these people... Um, have never, ever been interested in making sure that the many have a decent uh, standard of living and can reproduce. All they're concerned about is making more money and having more power. But more far-sighted members of the ruling group sometimes think that it's necessary to make concessions. And they did so after the Second World War across the world. I mean, perhaps the most famous one in the case of the US was the Roosevelt New Deal period, where they look to make to improve the conditions and the lot of the very severely damaged uh, situation for the majority of people in the Great Depression and after the Second World War, but that period only lasted. We 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 Marxist economists call the period from 1945 to 1964 the Golden Age, when there was reasonably full employment. We had these public projects. We had uh, uh, perhaps better education in the UK. We even had. Uh, a free tertiary education, university education, and without loans, without student loans. We had grants. I went to university, I had a grant. <laughs> Lucky didn't pay you. A fee. Uh, all that is gone. It's all been wiped away because capitalism could no longer afford it after the 1970s and has continually tried to chip away at the those gains that people made after the Second World War in order to restore a, a, a very difficult situation for them, a falling rate of profit which took place from the 1980s onwards and led to many of these slumps that we've talked about. Yeah. And uh, while we're on the subject of housing, um, I, I'm curious if you know anything about uh, it's, it's been a kind of ongoing debate in, in this country and, and on the left. Uh, but the, the NIMBYs and the YIMBYs, are you familiar with these characters? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so for, for the listeners who might not know, um, NIMBY stands for not in my backyard and YIMBY stands for yes in my backyard. And um, we've talked about them on the show before. Um, we, we had a, a, 
fantastic kind of discussion about how supply and demand isn't really the issue. It has to do with land values. Um, and, and I got into a big spat with some of these people online like about a, <laughs> about a week ago. Um, and, and there's a lot of socialists now who, are, especially in the Bay Area, who are um, who are identifying as as Yimbis, and you know their their basic reasoning, um, whether they're on the kind of left polit- political side of that spectrum or the right political side, is that when you have a bunch of people moving into a place, uh, you need to build more housing, um, and uh, that will drive prices down. Um, but you know, I I'm not sure that the story is is so simple, um, and I also don't know that supply and demand really works that way. Um, but I, I'm curious if if you have any kind of insights on this. I know this is kind of <laughs> out of out of left field here, but um, you know, no, I, no, it's uh, I mean, it's um, these are important economic questions, and yeah. I, I think that uh, and housing is a key question. Uh, as I say, starting with the principle that should housing be a commodity. Uh, should we just have housing on the basis of what profit the developer or the builder can make out of it in selling to people? Mm-hmm. And uh, should housing be a commodity in the sense of how much uh, uh, debt banks can make to, can offer in terms of mortgages in order to persuade people to purchase properties? Is that the way that we should organise a very basic social need? I'll come back to that point again. Mm-hmm. My view is that this should be a social need and it should be publicly provided. And that means also that we need to plan it in such a way that it meets all the conditions, not just of whether we're actually providing the housing or the uh, commercial buildings in the right places. We're also making sure it's environmentally uh, good, uh, ecologically sound, that it actually helps uh, and integrates with things like transport and education and all the rest of it. And that does require planning. I mean, I am staggered when I hear so often uh, statements by orthodox economists that what's wrong with housing? There's too much planning regulation. Uh, what they really want to do is to do away with it all and just let the developers do whatever they like, stick it wherever they want, and whatever profit they can make out of it, and ruin it uh, across the board. But planning as a principle seems to me a very important part of the process, and it will, in many ways, deal with the issue of NIMBY versus YIMBY, it seems okay. to me. That if we have a democratic uh, consultation and, and control over the planning process in housing, but then you can't separate housing off. It has It's all part of the same process. It requires democratic planning on a whole range of issues, including production, transport, and the control of the, the credit system and the banking system. Sure. Yeah. And, um, you know, also on the subject of planning, I'm, I'm sure that there are uh, a handful of listeners who are probably uh, screaming at their radio right now about planning, <laughs> um, not least of which uh, my, my father, if he's listening. Uh, we have many <laughs> lo- loving debates about uh, politics and economics, and uh, I, I'm sure my mom would disagree about the loving debate part. But, um, but yeah, so, so you know, I, I think a lot of people, especially in this country, are, are, are deeply sort of skeptical of planning. Uh, uh, planning as, as, as a kind of economic idea. Uh, they, they view it as a kind of aberration of, of, of human nature. I tend to think yeah. human nature is fundamentally cooperative and the aberration is the other way around. But um, I, I'm, I'm curious if you could kind of talk about a, a kind of defense of, of planning a little bit. I know that's a kind of big, yeah. you could write a well, dissertation I think, about I think it. first of all, you'd say if, if uh, people doubt that the role of planning in uh, human social organization, then I ask them if they're working for a private company, particularly a big one, when they go there, do they not think that the managers 
and everybody else are not planning what that company should do, right. where things should go in that uh, company, where where the location should be. They're not doing it on the basis of supply and demand. They're not deciding they're going to build an auto factory in Brazil because somebody's offered the money. They're deciding it on the basis of what would help to keep their costs and their their production going in the most efficient way. So every company, even the small ones, even just with six employees are planning what to do within the company to make it work. This is a broad accepted view, I mean, even in orthodox economics. So planning is not irrelevant, particularly to when you're in your workplace because the bosses are planning things for you. What <laughs> right. you want is democratic planning. Why, why doesn't everybody have a say, not only in what's going on in their company or in their organization democratically, uh, but also in society as a whole. And we, the, the, the evidence shows that where there is democratic planning, where the basic social needs uh, that people require, which is education, health, transport, uh, housing, uh, and a decent uh, uh, retirement position when they finish, those things require planning. And, uh, and if we're going to do it in the most efficient way, rather than leaving it entirely anarchically, to the movement of supply and demand and the profitability of individual capitalists and big billionaire owners of those organizations. Do we want to leave just them to decide everything on the basis of what they think is in their interests? Uh, or do we want to, as a, as a, as a whole community, uh, to, to try and work out those things together? That seems to me the basic principle. Uh, I'd say, Kiefer, that... Um, I'm going back again to Margaret Thatcher, which is a bit of a bet memoir in uh, in the UK amongst <laughs> the left. Uh, she made a statement. She said once that there we don't need planning because there is no society. In other words, we're all just individuals uh, scrambling and fighting each other for what we can get, and we don't have any social cohesion and cooperation. And we shouldn't consider things that way. Well, I I think most of your listeners would find that ridiculous. They can see the yeah. requirement for social cooperation and organization, and therefore some degree of planning, particularly if it's democratically run. Sure. Well, you don't have to worry. Uh, Margaret Thatcher's a bugaboo here, too. Uh, <laughs> you know, th there's been well, a... Well, <laughs> not amongst, uh, I, I remember the, uh, the, some of the administration would think she's pretty marvelous. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's been a... Uh, she's been catapulted into the news recently uh, because uh, Meghan McCain uh, on, on the... View, they, they've been having... This, this is maybe... This is a total tangent, but, uh, you know, it's, it's been kind of incredible to see the, the conversations about uh, democratic social and socialism uh, enter into the mainstream, um, mm -hmm. not least of which in uh, The View, uh, the, the, the talk show um, aimed, most, uh, aimed mostly at um, uh, sort of housewives, really, um, um, here on American television. Uh, they've been having actually a really robust conversation about meeting social needs. And uh, anytime anyone talks about that, those, that all those things that you mentioned, uh, you know, healthcare, housing, et cetera, et cetera, education should be human rights, uh, there's always a huge round of applause. And uh, Meghan McCain has steam coming out of her ears and uh, quotes uh, Thatcher about how, um, you know, socialism is a great idea until you run out of other people's money. Um, but, but you know, like this, this, is, this is fundamentally ridiculous. The, the amount of money that we spend on war, the amount of money that uh, gets wasted um, through competition, needless competition, um, et cetera, there, there's, there's, there's more than enough to go around. You know, um, I I think I don't know who other people's money is, but I'm not sure. <laughs> example where uh, uh, the billionaire owners of the big uh, corporations in the U.S. and the, and Europe uh, 
they seem to have a lot of, of other people's money. Exactly. They're making, <laughs> they're making a decision about how to invest it and what to do with it. We don't have any say over it. I think, uh, yes, government is taking other people's money. That is all of our money right. in some form, either through taxation or otherwise. And it's trying to, it should be using it in the interests of all of us. It's a question of what sort of government we have and how well it's run. Yeah. Uh, not the question of whether it's other people's money. Sure, yeah. And I, I always like the uh, the socialist call of, you know, that the, the Great Recession was socialism for the rich and uh, uh, capitalism yeah. for the poor. Um because uh, yeah. they, they, of course, got bailed out. Um, but yeah, yeah. so I'm curious. We, we already kind of talked about uh, maybe the outlook for the housing market. Um, but if we can also like maybe uh, – and you hinted at some of the kind of future uh, prospects of uh, of, of, of economic crises. Um, but let's, let's maybe focus on the future a little bit. Um, what do you think the outlook is like for the next year, two years? Um, if, if, if the thing is going to crack, what are going to be yeah. the fault lines? Um, yeah. Well, at the moment, uh, Kiefer, I mean, if you read the, the pages of the press and watch the TV and uh, go, on, um, go on the sites which are interested in economics, I'm sure most, of, most readers probably avoid those. But anyway, <laughs> uh, if they do, then they, everything is apparently fantastic. Uh, uh, your president is telling us every day that it's it's the most fantastic and super economy thanks to him. It's growing at four percent. Employment's at a record low. Uh, everything is uh, going forward fantastically in the U.S. Of course, things aren't going so well elsewhere. Donald would say because it's he's not in charge of those countries yet. Um, but even there, they're supposed to have been an improvement. And as I said. This long depression that we've been through seems to have got a little better uh, for the world economy in the last year or so. But my impression is that this is not going to last, that uh, we still have difficulty. Capitalism still has difficulties in getting sufficient profit. I know it's difficult to believe when you see the profits of Amazon and Apple and all the rest of it and the banks. But across the whole swathes of capitalist companies, uh, not only in the US, but Europe and Japan elsewhere, profitability on average is still not anywhere near as high as it was even in the early 2000s. So there's still a problem. And there's still a huge amount of debt that these uh, corporations, on average, are holding across the world. And many households have still got a lot of debt. So there's still downward pressure on on the world economy as a result of these two factors, low profitability and high debt. And those two things could cross over like a nasty scissors in the next couple of years as profitability stays low and in and the cost of servicing that debt starts rising your federal reserve bank is raising rates our bank of england's raising rates the cost of uh, borrowing is going to rise not only for uh, households but also for companies uh, and the banks are going to find that they're going to get people defaulting on their debt in the in the next two or three years and that's a situation which could cause a new slump and in fact capitalism in many ways likes a slump it gets to get to get rid of a few inefficient workers and some inefficient companies and restart again. But so far, it's not been able to achieve a sufficiently large one. Mm. So I have to post your uh, listeners the terrible prospect of after going through what we discussed at the beginning of this uh, discussion, the Great Recession, a terrible uh, slump not seen since the 1930s. Ten years later, we face the prospect in the next two or three years of another slump. Yeah. Uh, which may well start not in housing this time, but more likely in the uh, in some of these more inefficient companies and the level of debt that they've got and their inability to pay 
causing a chain reaction across other companies and producing a downturn in the stock market and a downturn in the bond market and the opposite of what uh, the Donald thinks is going to happen, particularly as he's actually uh, making it worse by now trying to put a huge tariff trade war on with other countries in the world and making it even more difficult for other capitalist uh, countries to survive as well. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, and certainly. I, can, uh, I can say that... Um, you know, I, I've had I've had budget issues on many projects that I've worked on because of the rising price of steel and also of of cedar and other softwoods that come from Canada. Um, so in this kind of very real way, I've had to change the way that I design. <laughs> and I think yeah. <laughs> which which is interesting. And I and I often wonder too if uh, uh, you know it would be interesting to do a kind of study of buildings and uh, you could probably like uh, like rings and trees uh, see yeah. <laughs> recessions and their effects. Uh, I was going to ask Kiki for how much of the, say of an average construction would be have to be imported materials for in the US. Yeah, uh, quite a bit. Yeah. yeah, quite a bit. And it's, you know, it's it's amazing how we kind of source these things and, and how, uh, you know, I think architects are in a real pole position to see the kind of irrationality of these systems. Um, you know, the amount of wasted time that goes into bidding a project, which is yeah. supposed to be kind of purely competitive activity. But, but here we have to go and we have to collect bids from, you know, a dozen contractors. And, you know, you, you compare them and you find the best value. Um, and, uh, but, but, you know, that's, that's, dozens, dozens, maybe even hundreds of people uh, who are yep. kind of involved in, uh, 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 I don't know, like what, what ultimately proves to be a fruitless enterprise for the majority it's of them. Costs of circulation. In, in Marxist terms, we say that the, the most important thing is the production of value. Yeah. But a lot, a lot of stuff is wasted in just trying to get the right price for the, for the profitability for the person running it as a capitalist. And if we didn't have to do that, we would save an awful lot of costs. Yeah, and, and I, I think a, there's been a lot of discussion about um, how automation might be a tool to help architects do that. Um, but I, I think yeah. the, this automation question, um, it usually comes from, from a, a, a real concerns, um, but it gets approached kind of uh, in, the science, in a kind of very naive science fiction way. Um, so, you know, I, we've only got a few minutes left, but I, uh, since, yeah. since a lot of uh, listeners to the show will kind of be thinking about automation. I'm curious what what Marx has to say about automation um, and what, what you can tell us about that. Well, Marx was, this may surprise listeners, Marx is well aware of the very great importance, not, you call it automation now, but if you like, mechanization or the replacement of human labor or with machines to do the work. He said it was twofold. On the one hand, it makes a fantastic improvement in the amount of things and services that we can produce at much less time. Automation is a good thing in that sense. Mechanization is a good thing. But it's also got a, a, a nasty side to it, a dark side to it, in that it's used by the owners of that machinery, the means of production and, and the robots as they are now, in order to reduce the living standards and conditions of human labor and put a lot of people even out of work. We know that we've there's forecasts that maybe up to 50% of existing jobs in the U.S. will disappear in the process of robots and automation over the next 25, uh, 30 years. That's a dramatic change. How that will be handled, uh, I'm not confident will be handled well in the interest of the many sure. while we continue with this system we have now. Yeah. Yeah. 
Awesome. Well, I think we're just about out of time. Um, Michael, thank you so much for, for joining the show. I so much appreciate the way that you're able to uh, take these these big concepts. I mean, I mean, this is, you know, really, really intense sort of sort of thinking um, and, and boil it down um, in a way that's that's intelligible uh, for, for the kind of every man. I think um, um, we need we need more thinkers like that on the left. And um, I'm happy that we're able to, to get you get you out on the airwaves here in Chicago. Um, we've been talking with Michael Roberts. You can check out his blog, thenextrecession.wordpress.com. Um, and uh, you can also read more um, in his books, The Great Recession, The Long Depression, Marxism, and The Global Crisis of Capitalism. And finally, uh, Marx 200, a review of Marx's economics 200 years after his birth. Michael, thanks so much. And thank you, Chicago. That is very dog-like, yes. yes. <laughs> that was very dog-like. Thank, thank you, Karen. <laughs> uh, welcome back to Buildings on Air. Um, I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and this is the mailbag segment of the show where we, of course, answer your listener questions about buildings and architecture. Um, this one's going to be a little bit different, I think. Uh, uh, but, but as always, um, it's been a couple months, but I'm joined uh, in the studio by <laughs> Anne Louie and Craig Rashke of Future Firm. Um, Craig, Ann, how's it going? Good. Thanks Going for great. Us back. Yeah. yeah. Happy yeah. to be here. It's, it's been months. <laughs> yeah. You were, of course, uh, away in Venice uh, for, for most of that time, um, quarterbacking the, uh, <laughs> the the Venice by the U.S. entry to the Venice oh, by Oh, that's right. You were the cover girl. I forgot about <laughs> that. Guys, yes. guys, I thought, we said, I thought we said this was a safe space. <laughs> we wouldn't talk about that. Jamie is, of course, referencing your uh, fantastic oh God, New City stop. cover. <laughs> yeah, did you, and what did you win for that? I've been, I've been dying to know. No. Nothing. I didn't win anything. Okay? You didn't get like a load of Pergo or anything? I just won shame and embarrassment for my friends and colleagues, okay? <laughs> Leave me alone. Now, listen, Anne, I believe you asked me if I knew where I, you could get any copies of New City. Like, a, as a thing to send my mom. <laughs> Guys. Right, so, we, we, can, we can shut her mic off. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Well, well, well. You certainly earned it. Um, and uh, now we'll st- uh, bring your embarrassment to a close here and, uh, and, and get back into the mailbag. <laughs> Deep breath. Yeah. Um, but but you, you had some 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 questions yeah. for 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 me. Uh, I think is yeah. is how we're going to to do this. We're we're swapping up the first half of the mailbag. Yeah. yeah. Sweet. So usually on mailbag we answer listener questions, but I think that. I had a question in early June, which I asked on Instagram, which is like my form of the mailbag. And out of the many people who answered my poll, only Kiefer Dunn got this question right. Actually, that's, Kiefer, that's right. Ki- yes, Kiefer <laughs> and one stranger who I think doesn't know anything about architecture and maybe just like wanted to participate in the poll. But, um, but he still got it right. He still got it right, but only like two people. So, so. that actually reflects poorly on Kiefer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what you're doing is damning Kiefer with fake <laughs> answer. You know, you were trained architect. You got it right, but sort of this other guy doesn't know what to think about this field. I, I feel bad wow. maligning him. I should maybe like look him up on Instagram and like, okay, so if that person is listening, if you did in fact know the truth, I also give you props about this. But you know. Many, many architects licensed and not got this wrong, academics, people in practice, whatever. So I thought it was important that we should think about this. I also want to know more information. So I'm going to ask Kiefer the question, and he's going to tell us what he knows. And then Craig and I today, you know, did some um, speedy legal research. (laughs) The best kind. I've always said that. (laughs) Superficial um, historical inquiry. And we're going to tell you what we found out. So, okay, the question is, I read this article on DZine um, that was published in March 3rd that was about architecture studios explaining their bizarre names. Um, And they were US, um, but they were also international practices. 
I, am I allowed to swear on the radio? No. Absolutely not. Oh, okay. <laughs> Including an office called Design and then a root, uh, a, a sassy word for ladies, um, mm-hmm. Atelier Bow Wow um, and Moss Architecture Offices. Anyway, the number one um, comment on this uh, article was, most U.S. profession, most U.S. states' professional licensing laws require the principals of architecture firms to identify themselves in the firm name on their drawings and in correspondence. So a branding of the firm is fine, says commenter one, but the principals must be identified since licensed professionals must own the majority of the firm. Um, usually, I am like antagonistic to like comment splaining, so I was like, <laughs> "This is wrong." But then Kiefer Dunn said, "Actually, it was right." So, is this true? Yes, it is. It's true only partially. It's I. It's not the case that most states require it uh, anymore, but it is the case that uh, most states used to have this as a as a rule. Um, and I think, like you know, it's it's pretty in the weeds as far as like professional like legal stuff goes. Um, but I feel very validated now in my like uh, knowledge of the nerdy corners of architecture and I think it's important to say that the reason why I'm more interested in this stuff I think is is not just because we care about the kind of minutia of the profession but I'm interested in it because I feel like that's where um, so much of the power and kind of politics of of architecture like exists it Mm. lives in the regulations and the nerdy stuff and 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 the things that that often get sort of shoved aside for um sexier you know ways of looking at at the political um but but yeah the i think you know by example i i I think that the reason why it was written into most states practice act that's the law that regulates architecture um which is a state-by-state thing um is because of this kind of idea of gentlemanly professionalness, mm. um, which you know that th- that architects don't market, um, uh, and we and we don't advertise, mm. um, which is something that that is that has changed um, almost by necessity. Uh, it's been slow to change, but the 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 way that the Practice Act works, um, which I think is is interesting to understand. Um, and, and this is the way and, and if listeners who aren't architects are listening to this, <laughs> um, you know, there are parallels um, in, in almost every regulated profession. We, we know some of the we have some good comparisons for you about other professions and how they have to name themselves or not. So oh, fantastic. Hold that thought. Yeah. Too. But and hold the thought about gentlemen, because we also have thoughts about. Oh, great. OK, <laughs> we'll do. But yeah. But but suffice it to say that, um, you know, if if uh, you don't care about architecture practice acts, that's fine. But, um, you know, next time you're thinking about getting your hair did or whatever, um, you know, that's that's a licensed practice that's regulated by the state in a similar way and kind of went around this this construct of licensure. There are all of these uh, not-for-profit entities that kind of emerge and these aren't like not-for-profits in like a kind of educational or religious sense, um, uh, just that they are corporations that do a thing that's not exactly for profit Mm -hmm. Um, and and the one in architecture, there's well there's several in architecture but um, the one that's relevant in this case is NCARB um, which which, uh, is the kind of, they they give the architects the exams um, but they also produce a thing uh, called model law Mm -hmm. and so so um, 
basically it's it's this kind of non-public entity that produces model law that then state legislators go and look at um, to make sure that the law in each state um, reflects this this model law and sometimes they make amendments to it but usually they just kind of grab it and put it in and they recycle the whole thing every 20 years and amend it periodically um, so that's the way that the kind of regulation works I have a problem with this um, I, I think and Carb is the best sort of entity in, in, in of all of the architecture institutions, but kind of on principle, I have a problem with this way of doing regulation um, because well, it's not just regulation. I should point out, yeah. especially in this state, and this is interesting. And not to cut you off, but sure. it, what you're reminding me is a conversation that John John Daly and I had uh, about CMAP and about some other things. Yeah, you know, the state of Illinois doesn't have a budget for research. If you're in Congress and you're at the federal level, you have this enormous army of people who can help you craft laws. Right. Uh, you have an entire congressional library open to you. Mm. It's not the case in the state of Illinois. So a lot of law is written by these bodies that you're talking about, hmm. as well as other entities like ALAC, uh, yeah. who push extremely right-wing uh, laws. So it's not just professional licensing. But it comes down to the fact that many state bodies do not have the resources to uh, right. actually hire and do research. And that is why, especially in this state, there is such a pervasive influence of lobbyists. Many of the lobbyists actually are researchers. People don't understand this. Yeah. People hear the word lobbyist and they think, oh, this is a guy just showing up with a dump truck <laughs> full of money to give to Mike Madigan. <laughs> That's not the case. Actually, most lobbyists, most registered licensed lobbyists are people that are doing research. Yes, they're probably doing it on behalf of a client, but they're yeah. actually trying to craft a law that can be passed mm. that actually fulfills a purpose. Mm. Right. And it is to fill a void that we have not filled in our own funding of state government. Right. And this is what the AMA does, uh, the American Medical Association. Mm. And in architecture, I think one of the things that's really weakened the profession from this standpoint is that uh, our accreditation body our, for the schools, our licensure body, and our professional organization are all separate, mm. which is not the case for most other licensed mm. and regulated professions. Mm. But I, yeah, I, I think that's exactly the right analysis, Jamie. And, and on principle, I would like to see groups like NCARB nationalized. Mm. They should be nationalized. Mm -hmm. They should be held publicly accountable, and they should be funded to do that kind of work, so that lobbyists aren't filling the, the void. Because, mm. um, and, and you know, when we joke about big insulation on the show, it's the same <laughs> thing, right? I well, mean, the, like, door, the door lobby. Yeah, the door <laughs> lobby. You know, like they they write, they literally write the kind of standards that then get referenced into the building code, and mm -hmm. um, and and so it, it's a it's this giant open loophole that is totally invisible because mm -hmm. it's so incredibly. Boring, even yeah. though it's right there, that uh, allows private interests to kind of enter into the legislating process. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that <laughs> that's that's my take on NCARB. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I, I mean, I think that the that um, they write this model law. Dozens, dozens of years ago, the model law said this was the only thing that you can name your firm. It has to be the partner's last names. Mm. Um, and now, um, well, now, now it's it isn't different. Much. Okay, yeah. so to go get really into the weeds in this, because actually, I think the question: If you, Kiefer Dunn, start an architecture practice in state X, Y, or Z, do you have to name it Kiefer Dunn Architects? Um, like, I actually, I. I think I feel right now agnostic on it, though we have some we have some thoughts about pros and cons. I mean, I, I don't think you should have to, but like what are, what are the stakes of this question? Yeah. Like are the stakes of significance like within the scope of the question itself? Um, yeah. I, I, I have some thoughts. But I'll give you um some examples of, of states currently and what the what the code is, because I think the the reality of this is because there was a model law, but um 
individual states have updated their practice acts like at various times with various amendments. Some states continue to enforce this idea that your practice has to be yeah. named after yourself and some states don't. So, okay. Yeah, if, and I don't think it's in current NCARB model law. Yeah, uh, that I did, I did not check. Yeah, that I'm, I did not check. I'm pretty sure it's not. I checked um, five random states. <laughs> <laughs> so here it is. Okay, if you, Kiefer Dunn, open a practice in Texas, you do not have to name it Kiefer Dunn Architects. If you open it in New York, you also do not have to. There is a, a caveat about naming your practice after somebody else's name. Uh. And that person had to have practiced, like, you could not open the office of Mies van der Rohe in New York. <laughs> that person had to have practiced in your office for 15 years and given you consent. Uh. Um, in Massachusetts, which I would like to say, for the record, this practice act only uses male pronouns to refer to an architect throughout the text, which seems like a small but critical change that it's we could the, make. It's the Commonwealth here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm like so surprised. But so yes, if you Kiefer Don, you know I and Louis do not exist um, in in Massachusetts apparently. But if you in Massachusetts open an office, um, you you do not have to. You, you are you are okay. Um, and you can, and in most of these states, unlike Illinois, you can go into business uh, with with other uh, professionals, and you can still call your practice an architecture firm, even if there is a mixed amount of principals who are doing different kinds of professional work. Um, in Massachusetts, however, you have to um, file a form with a certain office saying that you're basically. It's not exactly a doing business as form, but it's similar to say you want to open, you know, yeah. best architects in Massachusetts. Mm then you'll have to let them know who you are and what you do. Illinois, we're also fine. California, if you open a practice, this is what the name and restrictions code says. The name of a professional architecture corporation and any name or names under which it may be rendering professional services shall contain or be restricted to the name or the last name of one or more of the present prospective or former shareholders or of persons who were associated with a predecessor person, partnership, or other organization and whose name or names appear in the name of the predecessor organization and shall include either, one, the words architectural corporation or two, the words architect, architects, and or warnings, abbreviations denoting corporate existence. So you would have to be Kiefer Don Architects LLC. In California. Interesting. Yes. The no fun state, we like to call it. <laughs> <laughs> but you can file a fictitious business name, um, which is essentially doing business do, apps. Yeah, right. Yeah. So you're legal. And I, know, I think it might even be the case in – I know some states also have this uh, – other bit, and I, I wonder if California is like this too, mm. where it depends on how you're incorporated. So some states have this thing where you're a, 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 that's called a professional corporation, which is different from an LLC or a normal mm. corporation um, that is kind of halfway between a sole proprietorship and and a, and a corporation. Um, it, I've been really unclear on what the function is of, of this, and it doesn't. It seems like now that. Um, Architects are allowed to, in most states, uh, form an LLC. It's kind of irrelevant. But I, I, I think in Illinois, you might, if you have a professional corporation, you might still have to um, go by your your name. Um, and I wonder if California is not mm. this not not the same. But yeah, that's 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 very curious. <laughs> we have some okay. We also have some superficial historical examples. So. This is um, limited data in the sense that I looked at a spreadsheet that I have, which is all U.S. practices that have been founded in the last hundred years that have built overseas, which means 
um, which is from the um, Office US project that I worked on, um, which means it's a limited list. You don't get a lot of little yeah. firms, but you get firms of size that practiced um, overseas. And we um, went through them chronologically to see when the first n- firms that were named something other than people's last names emerged. Yeah, so that uh, that list has, it starts in 1945 with the Architects Collaborative. No, the list starts in the end of the 19th century, but the first. R- oh, right, right, our list, the yes, list we yes, made, yes. not your Office US <laughs> yes, list. Yes, yes. <laughs> the list of these three firms that we are looking at are the Architects Collaborative from 1945, which is uh, was based in Massachusetts. Are they yeah. still practicing? Do they still, um, is there a branch of that that exists? I don't think so. Did they um, get folded into Walter something? Walter Gropius's office. Um, and then the other two practices, both of which are from California, which I think is interesting considering the California law. No, Do you, say what? Uh, are Morphosis, founded in 1972, <laughs> um, and Design, swear word, uh, from 2010. Sorry, I just want to say, like, this isn't all the offices that have names that aren't people's names. These are just three case studies it's, that we thought were critical at different points. Man, right. you guys really yeah. brought home the research. <laughs> I Sorry. love it. I, I feel like this, we're saying, like, this is all the practices, but that's not true. But I feel like these were kind of benchmarks, right? So Case studies. Yeah, like, the Architects Collaborative, I think, emerges at a moment when corporate practice is becoming a type of um, architectural practice that, that grows quickly, right? Yeah. So in this post-war period, TAC, but also SOM and, and, and these kind of other large-scale practices begin to do architecture business in a different way. Um, and, like... I think they lead eventually to the kind of offices named things like AECOM, like Architecture, Engineering, Construction, and Operations and Management, I think, which is these kind of like anonymous generic words that kind of suggest that they're a business that does anything, right, or everything for you. And yeah. they're not associated with one individual. Morphosis, we think, is like a kind of different example in the sense that it was like a kind of avant-garde practice founded in the 70s. So you get this wave after Morphosis of architects naming themselves words that kind of describe how they want to be in the world that isn't about anonymity, but is about a kind of character or or way of being. Um, And then I think, I don't know how we thought about design. Design swear word. Design swear word. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really worried one of us is going to let that slip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, But that's like maybe a more example of a more kind of contemporary practice. Um, The Instagram age of branding? Yeah, Yeah. maybe. And they were one of the practices featured in the DC article that started this whole thing. Right. Hmm. Um, So, yeah, go ahead. I mean, I just, I think it was, uh, we did all of this research quite quickly, like two hours ago. But (laughs) we were just trying to like get at the question, like who, who might have been the first firm to take this non- non-named route um, and why. And I think that those are maybe some um, some interesting examples. Yeah. And you looked at other professions too, right? Yeah. Do we want to talk about other professions? Yeah, I think quickly. So I was kind of interested in both like law firms, which we see today are still usually named after their either their founding partners or current partners. Like I had a hard time Hence thinking. Hence the uh, fantastic Arrested Development bit about Bob Blah Blah, which is one of Arrested Development. So uh, no comment. There's a lawyer named Bob Blah Blah, and he had a law blog called Bob Blah Blah's Law Blog. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> Not to buzz market that show, but that's uh, a really funny bit. <laughs> uh, so the. Uh, 
But so I was reading the American Bar Association's kind of code of ethics, which I think is similar to um, to NCARB. And they also, um, they kind of spell out quite clearly that your, your office does not need to have the name of the partners in it, but it does need to reflect accurately what you do, mm. which I think maybe gives us a few clues about like why the name thing is important in, yeah. in architecture too. Um, and they give specific examples about not sounding in any way like you're uh, a branch of the government. Uh, interesting. So I think like, um, you know, uh, what's the example that I used earlier? Like you can't like, be like immigration law offices. Yeah, LLC, yeah like U.S. Right? immigration law or like yeah. U.S. Yeah. Um, you can be ambulance chaser, however. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's an official official designation. Well, it's an, is that it, what doing business as? It's, a, it's an official. Uh, I'm just saying it's not illegal. You could, <laughs> you, could yeah. you could define your firm in a very specific way. <laughs> if that's what you do, that's what you do. <laughs> Uh, but for physicians, um, and I was specifically in this case looking at California law, the um, the kind of same rules apply that you can name your practice whatever you want as long as it's not misleading. Right. So I don't think you can call yourself like uh, the knee surgeons if you really only give flu shots. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think I guess that made me think about the the kind of names of architecture firms that the um, that thinking about both of these, both law firms and physicians, like I would probably never go to a doctor that was called like future firm doctors, <laughs> yeah, like future doctors, <laughs> or like pigeon or pigeon doctor. Yeah, or, I would not yeah. go to a doctor yes. named pigeon doctors <laughs> or for those who, doctors. Wait a minute, how? What, what if you have racing pigeons <laughs> and your pigeons are sick? Then you would go to the pigeon. For those for those who don't know that these folks are referencing my office's name, which is Pigeon Studio. But he does not do homes for pigeons. I he do does not. homes for people. I do. Oh, you should do homes for pigeons. <laughs> yes, I would love that very much, actually. Oh, that would be uh, so great. You should do homes for pigeons. Oh, if you're yeah. listening to the show, please tweet in and request that yeah. Kiefer design some homes for pigeons. Yeah, I think that would be wonderful. A coop, yeah. Yes. That would be wonderful. Yeah, we just need a, 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 cl- a client that <laughs> – I'm, I'm imagining that we have a, a, a well-paying client that is actually just a bunch of birds in a trench coat. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I am pretty sure I did not imagine this. I must have just read it somewhere on Twitter about some pigeons that were racing with, they were racing pigeons with USB drives. Um, and the pigeon actually beat the internet because of like the size of the data package that you could get on the USB drive. Oh, that's so interesting. It. All right. I'm going to have to find that. And yes, please. <laughs> but there's, I think that there's, uh, there's like something funny about architecture that like we, we want to express a certain design vision in yeah. our names whereas both like so even though we kind of think of ourselves as professionals like yeah. doctors and lawyers we like uh we the like the name seems to have some more freedom to it yeah i have uh, a similar analysis but in reverse and i i am grateful for uh, being able to like name my firm whatever i want um and have that kind of flexibility and, and fun um really but you know i think that 
the the kind of origins of this, I think, have to do with this upholding this professional myth mm-hmm. um, that that professionals are somehow distanced from the market. And I think that um, architects, the reason why we don't do this anymore is because we've kind of given up that. I think it's myth in every single instance, right? Um, but I think that th- th- there's a kind of range of truth to uh, the, the amount of uh, market exposure that you have as a professional. And I think architects were the first to kind of give up that, that ghost because we're the first to kind of be subsumed in, into the market almost whole cloth. Hmm. Um, you don't need an architect anymore to do buildings. Hmm. And that's the kind of whole theory behind licensure is that the government grants you a, 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 a semi-monopoly over a part of the economy because it's necessary to fill you know, what they would call in legal theory the police function of the government, which is you know to maintain the public health, safety, and welfare. Mm. Ironic that they call it a police function, right? But like, anyway, but but that's 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 the kind of legal theory name, mm. and and and. So I, I, I think that, you know, doctors, uh, you can still make an argument, and lawyers too, even, um, you can still make some semblance of an argument, even in this day <laughs> and age of, like, peak neoliberalism, that, um, that they uh, uh, are, are somewhat insulated um, individually as, mm. as kind of people in, 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 from, from the kind of uh, broader market. Mm. I, I think the second you start to zoom out a little bit, that, that, that clearly falls apart, mm-hmm. of course. Um, but um, but yeah, so unlike dentists who are constantly trying to sell me some sort of extra deep cleaning, <laughs> which is like five hundred dollars more, and I can't well, figure out why. Yeah. Well, you can't speak because <laughs> yeah, they yeah. have so much. Equipment well, you're like, I guess so. <laughs> but but it's interesting. Like since we're like really deep in the weeds here, you know, the the dentists are the reason why pr- professional regulation mm. is falling apart in this country. <laughs> oh, and it's the dentist's fault. It is. It is. Well, <laughs> specifically, so they I had it in for those guys. Yeah, <laughs> they 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 had um they they basically the teeth whiteners um, were issued a cease and desist letter by the by dentists in North Carolina, the professional body representing dentists, who basically said, hey, Mr. Mall Kiosk Teeth Whitener, you're practicing dentistry without a license. And they said, no, like this is all cosmetic. And uh, that case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And um, basically, the Supreme Court said, uh, yes, like you are trying to quash competition. And um, this semi-monopoly that you've been granted by your license um, is 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 not you don't have it anymore. And mm. further, it, that's and so that set a precedent to where the whole undergirding everything of licensure was kind of pulled out. Mm. And so if you talk to all of the kind of wonks who like from NCARB and from people who are really involved in professional licensure, they are freaking out mm. um, because the 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 entire kind of basically. We're, 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 what we're tending towards is a kind of pure Milton Friedman view of the market. He hated professional regulation. Milton Friedman, the right-wing libertarian mm-hmm. economist, he hated this idea of that professionals have monopoly, and he said that everything should be exposed to the market. Mm-hmm. And I think that our architects, we sit in this kind of uncomfortable position mm-hmm. with that because, um, you know, like, I I don't want to, I, I want to have a semi-monopoly <laughs> over the things we do, but, but, but not because 
because I want my business to be successful. And I mean, that's a pleasant side effect, but because we think what we do is important to the health, safety, and welfare of the public, mm-hmm. and we need to be insulated from market pressures to do that. Um, that's that's the whole logic why we have licensure, and I could see how having a boring name that's just your name mm-hmm. uh, fits into that, right? Because there's also this yes. two-thirds requirement. Yes, um, in Illinois. The two-thirds requirement is part of NCAR model law. Mm, but um, is enforced not in any of the other four states I looked at except yeah, for Illinois. Yeah, and in Illinois. But maybe I don't know. Somebody can tweet me and tell me yeah. if I'm wrong. Yeah. So the two thirds requirement. Um, again, we're really into the weeds here, but it's it's interesting stuff um, for me anyway. I, I think uh, has uh, a, a similar kind of logic, and so basically this has that two thirds of the board in the case of a kind of public corporation, or two thirds of the owners of um, any architecture office um, have to be licensed architects or engineers, um, and this this it's a similar idea. So so that basically you always have control over you know following through on your professional ethics. Mm. That's why that part is regulated. So so that way you don't have an asshole boss um, who uh, is not does not have the kind of um, ethical requirements implied by licensure uh, mm. uh, telling you that you have to build something unsafe for, for financial reasons. Mm. Um, that's why that requirement exists. It's to theoretically align the financial interests of the office with doing public good. Mm. Um, and the way that that requirement is written in Illinois is really bad, I think, um, because it's not updated to the most current NCARB model law, which is marginally better about mm. it. Um, anyway, can, can I ask you guys? I mean, I guess I think the t- the it, the thought about kind of yeah prof- professions and insulating the kind of work architects do from the pressures of the market through these kind of like armatures of bureaucracy is really interesting. Um, and I I guess I I want to ask you guys a question about both culture and liability, <laughs> which is that my first thought, which is because the profession historically was male, that these kind of names, um, uh, firms that have men's names at, at the helm, like Office of Mies van der Rohe or yeah. perhaps, um, uh, you know, Chicago office, Jan, which is the name in all caps, must be, you know, like written in all caps everywhere. Yes. I, I have to say, like, I'm not sure I would ever name my practice like Louis in all <laughs> caps, but, you know, to each their own. Um, I guess on one hand, do you think that, like, in – in tandem with kind of making or helping architects to be perceived as kind of, um, you know, like objective professionals. This also kind of emphasizes the sense of a single author or kind of hero myth of the architect, right? Like that there is a one Howard Roarchy type person standing, you know, on a cliff. Um, And secondly, however, does that more or less reflect like your own experience of like your responsibility and your liability to whoever does a project, which is something I think we've been with thinking about a lot more in our in our business about like our own kind of emotional and ethical responsibilities as well as professional responsibilities towards our client. Like what is the balance of of kind of putting your name on a thing in a way that uh, takes ownership, right? And responsibility and a kind of way of being in the world that is like more collaborative and kind of um, honest to the kind of dozens of people it takes to put together a building. Was that that was no, was that a, formed as a question? Yeah, I don't know no, if that was kind of formed as a rant question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I, th- I think it's a good question. I don't, know, Craig, do you, I, if you have any thoughts. 
uh, I have <laughs> I guess thoughts. I have, yeah. I, have, I have a lot of thoughts, but I mean, I guess I think that part of it is reflected in that, like, we didn't name our firm uh, Louis Rushke or, you know, mm-hmm. Craig and Ann Architecture Studio. Yeah. Um, but did try to, like, describe uh, it and, as, like... Craig and Ann Architecture Studio <laughs> is so adorably <laughs> quaint, though. <laughs> Do they make pigeon like, coops? <laughs> <laughs> no, we only make architecture for people named Craig and Ann. <laughs> That's a very yeah, limiting uh, rule. Yeah, I'm imagining you guys, like, dressed in, like, American Gothic, like, sort of... As, as <laughs> like, like, yeah. That is us. <laughs> uh, You're saying we chose so, not to... Yeah, and I think that that's because, like, it makes Future Firm more accessible to others that want to kind of participate in the things we do, whether that's, like, showing movies on the street corner or, like, people that have come to work for us or collaborated with us. Yeah. um, That I think it just, like, makes it, like, a more dynamic endeavor. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like we abdicate some responsibility by not putting our name, like, on the title on I mean we do put our name on every title or block but like loudly on the title block on the front of the office you know this is one of like the the things just emotionally or like how we present ourselves I know that's the question not like literally you're right that there is a kind of like unevenness or like a schism here because he's like usually it's an individual that's still stamping the drawing set Mm -hmm. and taking on the liability that that um of meeting the standard of care, um, mm. which is a fancy way of saying, you know, you did what any other reasonable architect would do. Mm. Um, and, and after that, the liability is taken on by the corporate entity or you as an individual, if you're a, a, a partnership or a sole proprietor. But like, so, you know, I think ultimately that responsibility still comes down to the stamp, mm. which I, I agree, I don't think is, is actually reflective of of the case. There's actually a great mailbag question that I'll, I'll not ask. I'll just reference it. <laughs> but someone was, was basically asking, so if there's, you know, um, everyone makes mistakes. So why is it that, you know, there aren't more buildings falling down? Because like, actually, uh, you know, whenever there's a building collapse almost anywhere in the world, it's usually big news. Mm. And even if there's like a small, like there's like the parapet of a building on Princeton Street in the neighborhood tipped over a little bit and it was on the, you know, it was on local news. (laughs) Like, so, you know, like the fact that uh, these kinds of incidents don't happen almost at all, mm. um, you know, it, like, I think shows that uh, the, the building industry and the way that we think about safety is, is like, really thorough. Um, and, and it's because it's not just one person putting their stamp on it. It's because there's contractors looking at it, there's city officials looking at it, there's building inspectors, right? Like, there's all of these things that are, that are kind of there uh, to make sure that it's fine. And I wonder, especially as, as a kind of lefty, whether or not um, there's a licensure a, a licensure scheme that can reflect that um, you know I, I don't think it's far-fetched to um, see a world where offices are licensed rather than an individual architect working within mm. an office mm. um, or partial licensure right mm. uh, to reflect the the specialization that exists in the building industry hmm. right now I mean I think that there are all these kind of forward-looking schemes um, that um, the kind of inertia of the industry is t- going to be too slow to get around to um, mm before architecture gets totally wiped out. I mean, I think if you, if you, if you have a cynical view, yeah. and I often sound cynical, but I'm really optimistic, but I think if I, if I put on my cynic hat for a minute, what I worry about is, um, you know, that 
because we have even a, 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 a responsibility to the health, safety, and welfare of the public that runs counter to developer interests, that um, all of these regulations that do exist will be chipped away mm. until there's nothing left. And the only reason that people hire an architect right now is because they need a permit. Nine times out of 10, that's the case. I think uh, they hire large offices because they're complex projects and they need someone to manage that complexity. Um, but I, 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 I feel pretty grim about the prospects for architecture unless we are able to restate the value of what it is that we do. That, that is to say that we, we, we reconceptualize our value as being something different from just providing a stamp. Well, I think that that nimbleness also is really important. And I, I think the idea of like licensing offices is interesting. And I think it has, you know, like pros and cons. But I guess we I was talking to Paula Guerre, who I think has been on the show before. Uh-huh. And she was saying, you know, like while we have talked maybe like five minutes ago about the kind of innovation of corporate practice, right, which is like only a few decades old, but allowed kind of architecture practices to take on projects of a much different scale and a much different speed. Um, you know, Paolo makes argument that that those kind of practices are on their way out, right? And that collaboration is kind of a new model of, of coming together, that there are many individuals yeah. who will like group together over their skill sets and interests around a certain project, and then they may dissipate, and then they may form again in a different kind of organization. And I'm not sure, like, I don't think either, I don't think either model has to rule all, right? You know, or, or any model has to rule all. But like, I, I do think there's a sense that like, licensure, firm naming, like state practice acts like need to be kind of more nimble to stay both the kind of like, yeah, yeah landscape I mean, of business, but uh, also the landscape of way pe- ways that people work together, which are, mm-hmm. are not the same as they were sure. in, you know, 1945, or even before. Yeah. And most people yeah. to be also, not to be depressing to you guys who are licensed <laughs> architects, and I am not, most people don't need architects. I mean, right. The yeah, fact of the matter is that I would say nine-tenths of the people who are living in this very neighborhood, if they purchase a building, it's already built, and if they do renovations right. on it, unless they need to pull a permit, which in, in general you do in, in Chicago, but you don't need always to have drawings to pull a permit, yeah. um, you're, you're not going to have an architect. Right. If you are going to build a house or you're getting a house built by developers, say, I don't know, one of the new developments around here, most of those come, in a sense, ready-made. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, you, a developer already has a set of plans, uh, and unless you are... Which they buy wholesale from a cheapo architect. Well, you know? right, but I mean, I, I'm just yeah. saying, unless you're a more sophisticated consumer, I, I mean, and I mean sophisticated in the sense that you actually know this is an option, right. you're, you're probably not going to challenge the developer and say, well, I really don't like this cookie thing that you've brought right. me, and I'm buying this house for mm-hmm. you for a pretty good price. I want it to be done this way. Right. You're, you're probably not going to challenge that. And it's also probably unlikely that you are going to be involved with a contractor who has an architect on the firm, Absolutely. which I think is actually the most interesting dynamic. I know of a couple of architects and contractors who do the project um, uh, from genesis to completion. And in fact, mm-hmm. I believe Kimsky and the Mars Brewery were done that way, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, and, and you know, for me, this is really comes down to a question of enforcement, because if we take the kind of premise that undergirds licensure, that it is about the health, safety, and welfare of the public, um, and we have this two-thirds ownership requirement for practices that are engaged in architecture, like nine-tenths of what's happening out there is straight-up illegal. 
and the state does not enforce it. And I do think that this has an impact on the health, safety, and welfare of the mm-hmm. public in, in the form of like buildings that, that look like crap and things you, you, like little, it's, it's usually little things that are much more minor than uh, structural failure or making sure that, you know, the heating works. Like and, buildings that don't meet the energy code and are contributing to global warming, killing us all. Exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's, it usually happens in like those really minor things. But, you know, like porch contractors in Chicago, um, th- they all have to pull a very intense permit in the city. Yeah. Um, and and uh, there's only one way you can build a porch in the exactly. city at the moment. too. And, 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 I, and gar- I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I and I guarantee you that most of the most of the, contra- the most of the porch companies, porch specific contractors, they have someone stamping the drawings, but they have some weird legal maneuvering that they're using to get around the Practice Act. Um, that's what my gut tells me. And I and and but uh, isn't, oh, we had to have drawings for the porch uh, on my house, right. and I know who did the drawings. <laughs> right, right. You hired, you hired, you hired. But, yeah, but yeah. we we had to have drawings, though. We were told we had to have drawings. Right. Yeah. But no everyone, um, it's not just uh, porch people. It's also any developer that right. has architects working for them in-house is technically not meeting the Practice Act. Absolutely. Which in some ways is like, I I don't know, I have a hard time like getting too outraged about that because yeah. it's like, I, don't know, I think it's a, like a bigger professional problem than just like the, the Practice Act. Yeah, no, totally, totally. But it all hits the ground there, I think. Um, anyway, maybe we should ask some regular mailbag questions. Yeah, let's we got, I'm, I'm <laughs> Now that everyone now listening th- is sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> They've well, gone to yeah. get a snack. <laughs> yeah. did, did we lose everyone, Jamie? Zero listeners. <laughs> <laughs> we now know this information. Yeah, it's a new love. <laughs> <laughs> what? Oh, my God. Jamie, can you see the amount of listeners online? It's yes, I can. The internet stream people. Yes, I can. Um, However, it's, it's actually not very reliable. Yeah, to be to be candid with you. Plus, so. we have podcast listeners. <laughs> Thanks for making us feel better. And, and all the and oh, all the, there's still no one's listening to you, Anne. So. <laughs> and all the You're ports, like nothing has changed. All We're the forceps who are uh, you know listening in on their FM radio. Mm. True. Um, Probably to twenty to thirty thousand of them. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So now we haven't changed the channel <laughs> inexplicably, whether they're stroke victims <laughs> you know, yeah. or, or the seek button in their car is broken. Yes. If, well, if you need medical help, please turn off the radio yeah. and call. <laughs> well, God bless non-commercial radio. Um, you know, uh, someone's got to be the first to talk about pra- practice acts for architects on, on FM radio. And I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if it was us. Um, and, you know, plowing new ground. Yes. <laughs> innovators and disruptors. Is here, uh, <laughs> bleeding edge discussion. That's yeah. right. <laughs> brain, brain bleeding edge. Brain, yeah. Yeah, Believe ears. it or not, that every day in our office is like this. <laughs> At yeah. Pigeon Studio and Future Firm's office is infinitely detailed discussion about things that <laughs> no one else cares about. Yeah. <laughs> Although I think we should be proud of the way that we uh, tried to make that relevant to the average because yeah. because it, uh-huh. it is it does it does impact everyone. Power and politics and all these big issues they so frequently boil down to this. <laughs> <laughs> stupid, dumb, boring level. And it's all just right there waiting for us to change it. 
Um, we've got a world to win, folks. Um, <laughs> anyway, on that note, um, let's get into normal mailbag. Um, and in true mailbag fashion, i got to ask you guys a question about air conditioning. Um, <laughs> why isn't the air conditioning working? <laughs> I, I'm a student at a vocational boarding school. There was a water main break outside the dorm building, and now the air conditioner doesn't work. I thought this meant we were using swamp cooling, uh, but my RA says that the building uses modern air conditioning ref- with refrigerant, but I'm confused because I thought those systems don't need water and wouldn't be affected by a water main break. What is happening to my air conditioning? It's possible that the water main broke and something broke on the air conditioning, and they're totally unrelated. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that what's happening here, so swamp cooling is usually you get like a little, it usually happens like a little self-contained unit, mm-hmm. but it's uh, where water um, is evaporated um, and has air blown over it, and uh, that process of evaporation um, produces a cooling effect, uh, but that only happen, that only works in really dry climates. It, it doesn't work. Right. Um, but but there's that same principle uh, works in most commercial cooling towers um, for big uh, for big air conditioning systems. Right. Um, so I think what's happening here is that they have a, a water tower, water cooling tower that is uh, actually the coolant for their air conditioning um, that was supplied by a water main and it no longer works. So I, this person's hunch was correct. Could you, also that you had a water main. Right. Oh yeah. Well, you also could have a water main break that flooded underground cables and caused the air conditioning to go out because of an electrical failure. That's too. true. That's true. Yeah. You know. But a lot of those systems are closed loop, aren't they? Like no. So they. So basically, the air condi- a normal air conditioner is closed loop. So the refrigeration cycle has refrigerant running through the compressor, and then it gets heated up, and then uh, uh, it goes through the coils and has air, uh, a fan blow over it mm. um, that yeah, shoots right. it to the outside. Right. Um, the difference with commercial systems is that instead of having a fan bl- being cooled by air mm. with that fan process, it runs through a water tank and heats up a bunch of water, which then goes to the cooling tower and then goes through that evaporative cooling process before it recycles. You're right. right. That's why when you walk by cooling towers that are ground mounted, you often get misted on. Yes, exactly. Or some of the big scary buildings in downtown Mm -hmm. Chicago that look very like opaque and intense. Um, They're usually like little like huts for cooling towers. Mm -hmm. And if you go on a uh, cold or very warm uh, day, you'll see plenty of steam coming off Mm -hmm. those things. Yeah. All right. Air conditioner question. So if I put my air conditioner in the <laughs> middle of the room <laughs> and turn it on. And do a rain dance. <laughs> so good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we also had lots of drywall questions this week. Cool. Um, That's different and fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, – <laughs> All right, but before we get to those, this is a really adorable misunderstanding. No judgment here, but it's it's funny. Uh, if the paint is really thick because it is old, um, should I add paint thinner to the wall? <laughs> no. No. no, no. You need a paint diet recommended. Actually, yeah, I would I would take the paint to Weight Watchers. Yeah. Uh, yeah, paint thinner makes the consistency of the paint thin, right? I, yeah. Yes. 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 It yeah. thins the paint so that you can actually paint thinner nowadays is used almost exclusively what? to clean brushes. It, yeah. pa- it paint is thinner used is. to clean. Uh, sorry, <laughs> it's used to clean brushes for oil-based paint. Right. For oil-based. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. like, if someone has a gallon of acrylic paint or latex paint that is been sitting in their basement, they it's just that the water has evaporated out of it, so right. you can add a little water to it and yeah. stir. 
Yeah, I, if you have oil base, you can add linseed oil, or you could add paint thinner if the same things happen. But the only time that anybody would actually add, and I don't recommend this, to a, a paint thinner to oil-based paint is if you're putting it in a sprayer to commercially spray it. Ah. You'd, you'd thin it out slightly, and that is extremely tricky stuff to do. And mm. I know this from personal experience. Having spent time in the upstate New York Painters Union, <laughs> spraying a chemical called Imron all over gas stations, mm. it is not pleasant. Yeah, yeah not pleasant. I was going to say, putting paint thinner in something that sprays seems like just toxic. Yeah. All. It's, it's real <laughs> bad. you got to wear a rebreather. And let me tell you, on a July day, oh, not fun. There's dude. not much rebreathing happening. There's not much rebreathing <laughs> happening. No, but that's that's the only time you would use paint thinner. Does actually. anyone, uh, I guess, in commercial applications, there are like some specialty paints that are still oil based, mm-hmm. but like in in typical home construction or like uh, lightweight commercial systems, there's like no one really uses oil-based paint anymore, Yeah. Right? The only time you'd use uh, any kind of oil base or chemical base would be for flooring, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd, you'd want some kind of oil-based urethane on a floor. If you're priming wood... Um, oh, like polyurethane counts as an oil-based? Well, you can get a latex polyurethane. They do mm-hmm. make it, but I would not recommend that for a floor. It's not durable enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like if you're if you're polying a table, you, you that's fine. But anything that gets a lot of uh, traction and wear and friction... Uh, the oil-based finishes are still vastly better. Mm-hmm. Now, if you really want to get into the weeds on this, certain states don't even allow you to do that anymore because of VOC. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. What that means is the volatility of the compounds entering the air. It causes pollution. It makes people sick. So there are limits, particularly in the state of California, on how many volatile organic compounds you can have in paint. Mm-hmm. And certain states now no longer even sell oil-based products. Because of that, you have to have a special commercial license Getting back to your licensing question, yeah. do you even have these, dispense them, and, and a whole bunch of training about how to do it, which I guarantee you every painter I've ever known has ignored. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, you know. uh, but That's reassuring. It's totally, it should be reassuring. Uh, have you ever met people in the painting profession? Um, right. No, it, it's um, the, the only thing you'd use in a house really for any kind of oil base would be if you had untreated wood that was going to be exposed to the outside. So like a decking that wasn't pressure treated or... Um, you know, the old fashioned, um, if you have wood, um, frames on your windows outside and that you, you, you've got old paint on them, they're, they're raw wood. You'd, you'd want to use an oil primer on that. But the latexes now are, are fairly, um, they're fairly effective as long as they don't, um, get a lot of sunlight and as long as they don't get a lot of moisture. Yeah. So I, when I was, when I was looking, looking around, uh, for questions and <laughs> for the mailbag, I came across this, this, uh, an, uh, a fellow non conspiracy theorist, non conspiracy theorist, <laughs> conspiracy theorist, who was a painter who talked about how the demise of oil paint was counterintuitively a conspiracy enacted by big oil. Now you, <laughs> now you may be asking yourself how is that possible <laughs> and uh and 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 basically they're arguing that um acrylic paint actually has because it's it's entirely plastic a much higher oil content than oil-based paint um and that it was all a giant conspiracy from big oil uh to put more plastic in paint um i i i, I think the 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 conspiracy theories about big insulation have more of a grounding in reality people have to remember that the paints used to be made with lead yeah, uh, and that's still a very serious problem in in Chicago homes, especially. There's a lot of unremediated lead paint, and lead is the number one chemical that if you were going to try to oppress a population and make them stupid, you'd put lead yeah. near everything. That's it, some people believe that led to the demise of the Roman Empire because they had aqueducts that were lined with lead. 
People used to bring giant sticks of white lead and mix it into paint because that was an excellent uh, binder for, mm. for all these chemicals. So I, I personally don't think it's true, but people forget that oil-based paints were actually the step after lead right. paint. Mm. It was trying to get colors and compounds to hold up in an oil-based medium. Acrylic paint, actually people have been trying to improve on. And your conspiracy friend is not wrong. It is basically rubber and plastic that you're yeah. putting. You're putting a thin coating of that on it. But again, the difference is because oils penetrate the surfaces of most properties, whereas plastics and rubbers don't, one lasts significantly longer. The problem is that oils and petrol obviously evaporate, and there's that evaporation thing there. And that is why the, the truth is oil-based paints, had there not been this volatility in, in compounds, people probably would not have developed acrylic paint in the first place because it, it's not as good a product. Yeah, That's that's kind of the end of it. You would, you would have used it in kitty paints, and that's it. But... Um, you know, uh, knowing what we do know now about uh, the ozone layer and all this stuff, obviously there's a move on to kind of eliminate that. Yeah. Uh, next question. Can I put ceramic tile on drywall walls in my bathroom? Yes, of course. Yes. You can, but if it depends on where, what bathroom walls you're using or putting the tile on. If it is a surround on, say, a tub that you want to turn into a shower, then you should probably take the drywall out and use cement board yeah. um, or something that is more robust and won't mold. Yeah, and you could probably, you'd, you'd probably have better results putting up backer board. Even uh, some, some tiles and compounds for um, putting up tile will say that they're safe to throw right on the drywall, but um, just getting a cheap old backer board that's made to be you know, have things adhered to it, probably a good idea. Both yeah. made to have things adhered to it and also will not mold when it gets wet in the right. same way the drywall will. Yeah, because right. stuff gets through that grout. It's porous. Yeah. I mean, you, I mean, I was assuming that they meant green board, to be yeah. honest with you, not mm-hmm. just regular old drywall. But you can yeah. slap uh, ceramics on drywall in the kitchen. That's fine. Yeah. yeah. People like do that kitchen all the time. Yeah, yeah, you can do that all the time. But um, Yeah, green board counts as a form of drip board. Yeah. It is just a wet rated drip board. Correct, yeah. yeah. So I was just, I was actually just thinking yeah. if you're building a bathroom you wouldn't build it out of drywall anyway. You mm. you a correct the correct construction of a bathroom <laughs> would would not have what we consider drywall in it anyway. Yeah. Well, Usually but I, I get would... the impression that this person has a bathroom that they want to add some additional wall tile to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And usually I would only put green board around like this shower and I would use normal mm. drywall everywhere else. Would you? Why? Uh, just for cost effectiveness and in ease of, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, you, you wouldn't spec a wall type around a bathroom as being uh, all green board on the interior of the whole bathroom, would you, Craig? I probably wouldn't, but it's not a bad idea. Yeah. yeah I mean, I mean I, if you can afford it. Yeah, I, I, when we did ours, I spec'd it as all green board. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah, just because having been in construction, why not? I mean, it's not the cost difference isn't that huge. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's, what's a... I think where the price difference comes in is when the contractor like looks at a set of drawings and sees mm. that there are like four different types of drywall and has to well, order and manage that material. I mean, greenboard is not exactly a rare commodity. <laughs> right, right. You know, I can I can order it right now, probably from from Home Depot and have it here in twenty minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so, but can you have someone to install it? Is the problem that is <laughs> yeah, that green, is happening these days? Greenboard's not well. That is true. Greenboard's not that hard to install though. It's just basically the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we we've got a couple of minutes left for this sure, segment. Why not? Um, let's uh, so I let's ask one more question. Um, Let's see here. 
Oh, this is a discussion that we had in the office the other day. Um, uh, but I found there was a question about it. Um, which is better, paint or wallpaper? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm firmly on the side of paint. So I did um, go in the Maria's bathroom that has a really beautiful pink pink wallpaper with black yeah. tile and it was coming over. And yes, there are counter examples, but we would never yeah. put wallpaper in any future firm project. Yeah. I yeah. say that firmly, unless there is like a... You know, but I wonder. I wonder if it has to do with budget. You know, like if there was a lot of budget and yeah. like there was space to hire a designer, an illustrator to like do some sort of wallpaper that was like unique and important and significant to the project and it was like on an important wall. Yeah. Like, would we do that? Maybe. But like right now, when you guys are like, it's the same price, I don't think so. When I was probably <laughs> like, 12 years old or something, I desperately wanted to get rid of the wallpaper that my mom had put in my room when I was like, <laughs> you know, five or something. Well, what? There was like some sort of like Americana theme, you know, I think it had like wood grain on it mm. and red, white and blue stars or nice. something. Um, <laughs> but so my mom's deal with me was you can, you know, like do something different in your room, but you have to take the, uh, you have to take all the wallpaper off. So like I spent what I remember as like months, like with this thing that perforates the mm -hmm. uh, the wallpaper. Then you like rub the water paper tiger. and this like <laughs> and this drywall remover on it, and then you have to like slowly peel it off. And it like I don't know why, but when I did it, it came off in like quarter size pieces. So it just like took. <laughs> That's because like, you didn't have the proper application of diff in the paper tiger, my friend. <laughs> Um, and then I think sometimes I like pressed on the paper tiger too hard, and then there were like perforations in the drywall. And <laughs> it was very difficult. <laughs> yeah, sounds like a traumatic experience that has scarred you on wallpaper forever. <laughs> yeah, I, I see that there's some psychological issues with wallpaper. You know, there wallpaper is, is beautiful. Wallpaper is beautiful. If you get a nice wallpaper, it, it's it's wonderful. Liberty of London makes some excellent yeah. wallpaper patterns. Yeah, there's a lot of horrendous wallpaper, but when it's good, it is good. Yes. Uh, Pigeon Studio is is was definitely part was on team wallpaper. Yeah. yeah. But I think that's Firmly. because I had opposite like uh, experiences because my mom always had really cool wallpaper around. <laughs> <laughs> that was yeah. always like really really interesting and very like fine and beautiful and like uh, yeah. prop properly. Um, installed <laughs> you had a nice kind of um like postmodern slash modern argument about why wallpaper was in fact genuine to its like function yeah. and, and thinness which i was both moved by academically but not moved by aesthetically oh yeah no this is the whole the whole thing about like the rendered surface you know like the way that buildings come together and uh, you know architects talk a lot about like m truthful material expression you know we end up ev everything is a kind of finish like we talk about finished materials which like if you talk talked about finished materials to an architect or a craftsperson a hundred years ago, they'd be like, what are you talking about? Do you mean how we're going to like finish what we made the thing out of? <laughs> like, you know, the idea of like of, of, a, of a covering is, is kind of weird. I mean, like it's still a feature of, of old architecture in particular ways. Um, you know, a lot of the ornate trim work is about uh, kind of covering up um, different things, but you know, like I think if you're going to have a rendered <laughs> surface in a building, as most of our finished materials are, yeah. you might as well like literally have a rendered surface, which is wallpaper. Mm. Um, that's that's the theoretical. Future term only does the, one finish, and it's PT one. <laughs> <laughs> White. Yeah. Or PT two, which is black. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's it. There, yeah. <laughs> I guess the thing that maybe we should start talking about is not the is maybe the surface that you have to put 
wallpaper onto, right? And we talk about the about big insulation. I also think we should be talking about big drywall, which is like yeah. the surf, just like the default surface in every piece of architecture yeah. is like ingrained into the um, big gypsum into the yeah, yeah big gypsum into the building code for fire ratings and just like there is so hard to um, get around it. Get around using gypsum board and projects. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Of course, the cost is prohibitive to do what would be nice, which is nice old plaster. Yes. I mean, that's first of all, find somebody that you know that plasters. Mm. I, I do know someone who does plastering, mm. and it's a rarity because mm. yeah. you know we uh, we have that on a project that we're working on right now. Yeah. Um, we specify plaster because pigeon suit. We like solid things. That's kind of our deal. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, it was hard and expensive yes. um, <laughs> to find. Oh, I'm uh, sure it was 10x with drywall. Yeah. 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 And now crazy. that is dripboard? No. Oh, look at you. <laughs> Holding on to the things that matter. Yeah. <laughs> what, how are you... Uh, okay, this is into the weeds, but what are you, you're doing, like, is this for your... Uh, are we allowed to talk about Kiefer's projects on the air? Is this for a renovation project where you are putting plaster on the inside of insulation on the inside of an existing building? No. Okay. It's it's it, full full disclosure. It is it is it was Ferdinand's pro- Ferdinand being the other half of Pigeon Studio. It's his, his apartment renovation. Mm. Uh, okay. So it's like it's it's an internal pigeon project. Uh, okay. Yeah, and but he, it is also a, an internal wall. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. okay. Yeah. It is both that internal to the practice and interior in the world. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Indeed. We, we both things. Gotcha. Clarifying. Yeah. Well, um, I think that concludes the mailbag. Uh, maybe, but maybe we can roll right into this conversation I don't about even, CMAP. I, I don't I even don't know, know if we're going to have time for the. Yeah, should we just a- ask a couple more questions? I think we should just ask a couple more questions, and I'll tell you what: if listeners to the podcast stay tuned after the ending, I'll just tack on the CMAP thing. There we go. As a little ten-minute bonus. Yeah, it's from another show. We should mention that uh, John Daly and I had a conversation on Radio Free about the CMAP meeting. Um, there's a ten-minute segment which we were going to talk about. Uh, CMAP is the um, Community was it community management uh, program, yeah. and they're they're trying to come up with a plan for Bridgeport, a twenty year plan, a thirty year plan, a fifty year plan. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, right after the mailbag ends, mm. you'll hear John Daly and and myself talk. Fantastic, about that. yeah. Because I, I recently went to the CMAP meeting. Oh, over at the Zebra. Yeah, and um, I I gotta say, like I think it dovetails with our with the conversation that we had with Michael Roberts about planning mm-hmm. where now we have to have an agency like CMAP to kind of come in after the fact to manage what is a really messy process right. and that will by nature have mixed results and I, I was kind of disappointed by what I perceive to be the image of participatory and collaborative design um, and being an architect kind of feeling like wow uh, this is going to happen in a really sort of shallow way um, but I I hope I'm proven wrong by that. And I think the thing that will prove me wrong is by having people out in our community actually go to those things and, and, and force for there's there, they've created an opening and, and, and we need people from the community to get out there and kind of force their way in shining style. Uh, Mm. So um, that's my commentary on it. Um, But yeah, that's great. Um, Then uh, let's, so let's, let's ask a couple more (laughs) questions here. Um, Why not? Oh, oh, this is a question that I really wanted to ask and answer, um, but uh, I'll let you guys have a first shot at it. (laughs) Why is it not good to use concrete reinforcement with aluminum rods instead of steel? Are aluminum rods an option? Or they are just fantasizing? Aluminum rebar. It doesn't have the same structural strength. 
Yeah, I, so it, that's true, it doesn't. Um, but the real reason is because they have different mm. uh, rates of expansion. So steel mm. and concrete have the same rate of thermal expansion, mm. and aluminum expands much more. Mm. Um, but but that's like hugely important and interesting <laughs> in uh -huh. a really nerdy way. <laughs> uh -huh. Because think about if steel and concrete, how often those materials are like embedded in one another or like meeting. If like and it's an accident of physics that they have the same uh, thermal properties mm. really are similar enough to not matter. Mm. And if you could imagine if, if they didn't have the same rate of thermal expansion, um, modern, buildings, we, modern buildings would not be the same. They'd be totally different in a weird way, hmm. which I think would be a really interesting thought Counterfactual studio I see on the horizon. Yeah, 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 exactly. Wouldn't they just be steel buildings instead of concrete buildings? Uh, hmm. Yeah, but then... Or concrete only. Or concrete only, yeah. In compression, yeah. And the only reason why you can have a skyscraper so tall is because of both at the same time. That's right. The cliff dwellers here in the city. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, I guess, well... Sears, Sears is an entirely steel, steel building, building with the exception of concrete floors, which yes. you could design expansion joints into. That's true. And that is right. quite a tall building. So is Hancock. Yeah. Yeah. Most uh, tall buildings are steel, steel structure, not encased in concrete for fire protection reasons. Or, or but like could be or fireproof. into messed paint or dripboard if we're talking about, you know, yeah. gypsum lobby or something. Right, right, like, right. It's not that's not a structural property. Right. right, that is yeah, that yeah. is true. Yeah, I think most tall buildings today are built out of concrete for financial reasons, not structural yeah. reasons. Yeah. Right? yeah, I think that's true. We're yeah. not undermining your counterfactual studio idea, which seems cool. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm still interested. Like, in what this. does the world look like yes. if there's no steel or something? Right. Yes, exactly. That's a cool studio. Or if it, yeah, it expands at the same rate as aluminum. That makes me sound like a crazy um, tariff trade war conspiracy theorist, and I didn't mean it that way. Just in an <laughs> interesting aesthetic and structural way. Sorry. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Um, here's another question. Um, let's see. Why not replace double pane windows with good single pane? Double pane often has to be replaced after 15 years. Save some money for heating. Um, but that can be made up by storm windows or insulation or weather shipping and no strong data about increasing home value. Anyone have any thoughts? But what is insulation that is not a double pane insulated window? Right. Uh, I think they mean insulation around the window. What oh, my question is, oh, sorry. but you have a storm window. If you had a storm window, you'd actually have a double effect that of double is pane. A double it would just pane be a window. poorly sealed. It'd be a very pane. poorly. Yeah. 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 What, but uh, I guess my question <laughs> is, why do they think that double pane windows need to be replaced more often than single pane windows? Uh, they I think in a high crime area. Or something? <laughs> <laughs> they, they play a lot of golf. I think, I'm yeah. on the west side and I live <laughs> near a golf course. <laughs> well, it's true that they are airtight usually. Um, um, and sometimes that seal will break after a certain amount of time. Usually, uh, sometimes they're also filled with an inert gas like argon um, that increases the... Um, insulative properties um, and it's true that that will leak out after a time but it'll still be more insulating than a single pane there's no oh, such thing okay. as a good single pane either but uh, i feel like this should yeah. be a detail in pigeon's uh forthcoming book uh <laughs> you know how thick a brick wall has to be to meet the energy code how thick does a single, single pane, pane of glass have to be to meet the u value there's no way there's no way uh it, i mean theoretically there's an eventual there's way right like yeah. if it's six feet thick 
Yes, that is right. that is. But the you case. would get the same thing with two smaller panes and the air gap in between it, which would act right. as the insulation. Yeah, that's, yeah. The whole, that's called physics. Yeah, that's <laughs> called yeah. physics, guys. Yeah, right. Yeah, there's there's no. It's not like they're saving money by using two bad panes of glass and then yes. in lieu of one really really yes. good pane. Right. Yeah, because <laughs> it's not the economics of this question. <laughs> right. I think the alternatives that they suggest like are the thing that they are proposing to originally get rid of, and yeah. that is the confusing right. part of the yeah. question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, although like I I do think that storm windows plus a good single pane uh if you if plus you that are, saran wrap stuff that you can buy at the yeah. dollar oh, store yeah. which yeah. is actually surprisingly really good yeah <laughs> if you are if you are sealing sealing every all of that stuff properly uh the luddite in me really does prefer that as a kind of solution to um uh, oh, like your a home window comfortable. product yeah like I, that you don't like this like pre-engineered no no there oh. there is also a kind of formal solution right that both placement of windows and angles of windows could control the temperature inside your space in a way that creates comfort for you without uh, having intense amounts of insulation. Yes, yeah. that Passive is true. Sustainability arm, yeah. future firm too. Yeah, true. Although, because the codes are written by big insulation, it doesn't matter. <laughs> oh, okay. but, uh, never, on that note, it's, on that note. pulling the plug on this one. We, right. we went to big gypsum, big insulation, big door. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, that's been this episode of Buildings on Air. Anne and Craig, thanks for uh, the long mailbag. It's been fun. And um, shout out to super producer Jamie for uh, uh, making sure that the show sounds good, is good, and uh, putting up with uh, uh, us crazy architects. Um, and, Keeping uh, us in line. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see you next month, folks. Thanks All right. again. And hey, stick around after the closing credits if you're listening to the podcast because we'll play that CMAP segment for you. This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay and Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at... B-L-D-G-S on air or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes. Welcome back to Radio Free Bridgeport. We were just talking about community building and we have a representative from the Chicago Metropolitan Agency for planning, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, yeah. My name is Noah Bogus. I'm an assistant planner with CMAP, uh, as we call it. So, uh, community planner, community builder, that's right up my alley. What, what does CMAP stand for? It stands for the Chicago Metropolitan Agency for Planning. Um, so, we serve the seven counties, uh, 284 municipalities that surround the Chicago metropolitan area. Um, I work for a branch called Local Technical Assistance. So, you know, we just go provide planning assistance um, to communities that ask for our help. So, um, you know, we do what we can to make land use, uh, development decisions, transportation, parks, and open space. Um, it's kind of the umbrella that we, uh, that we uh, fall under. Noah, how did you get involved in planning? Well, I'm a DePaul grad. Um, I went to DePaul two times uh, for undergrad, and then I stuck around um, for grad school. 
Uh, my master's program was called Sustainable Urban Development um, that I got into because I took some some urban planning classes in undergrad, and it just it uh, it looked like something that was interesting, especially being in this city. And then part of my um, graduate studies was doing community building on the west side of Chicago. So I looked at how you can repurpose vacant lots into community gardens um, hmm. and making spaces that are you know useful to um, to the people that already live there and kind of you know. Um, reinvigorating communities and, and doing that I just loved it so I was always trying to figure out how to get back to that um, after I finished undergrad I did about a year and a half of research um, a place called the Institute for Housing Studies um, so just kind of cut my teeth uh, learning data and analytical skills and the position opened up at CMAP and I've been there for about 18 months um, getting to know the region and, and all the diverse communities that make it up it's it's a lot of fun I mean most of my uh, coworkers are in the office right now, typing away, and I'm here on air with you guys. So, I've though been it is 95 it. degrees in in this studio, so you, if they're listening, it's much cooler in the office <laughs> where you guys are typing. I away. am sweating, not yeah. nervous, just sweating. Yeah. No, you just mentioned that there are a whole bunch of. We're kind of famous in Illinois for having lots of government, lots of bodies of government. Sure. Um, so you're coordinating through a whole bunch of people and and and. Uh, tax entities. Mm -hmm. So what exactly uh, is the technical assistance that you're providing? Yeah. So as I mentioned, um, we're application-based. So uh, the 11th District of Cook County and the 11th Ward of Chicago teamed up for an application um, to kind of have us come in here and do a plan for Bridgeport and Canaryville um, that strengthens local assets, uh, looks at making sustainable economic development, um, smart long-term housing choices, maximizing the parks and open space that can sometimes be difficult to come by in such a dense urban setting. Um, so the technical assistance that we're providing for this uh, project we're calling a priorities plan is we're really just trying to get a baseline for what's going on in the communities right now and give them some advice as to how best to move forward um, and realize their goals. So a lot of what we're doing here is setting the agenda for future development processes. And, and we're doing that because it is a, it's a unique study area. Um, and it's one that hasn't had a lot of urban planning projects that have been done here recently. A lot of our work sometimes is updating comprehensive plans that are maybe 10 years old or 15 or something like that. But for such a, for such a unique community um, and a unique community area, um, we're really kind of thinking about just understanding what people here think about their communities. What are their assets? What do they want to see maintained and what do they want to see changed? So um, we're here to ask people those questions and to have those conversations um, to combine that with some data and some map work and, and really get a feel for what the next step of the communities should be and how they can, again, you know, realize those goals and visions that they have. So I know you have an event coming up. Mm -hmm. We do. Um, yeah, so we're moving into uh, the community outreach aspect of the plan, which is really my favorite. I love being out here. Um, it's next week at the Joby Arts Center, uh, Wednesday, July 25th from 6 to 8 p.m. It's going to be an open house style event. I, I didn't want this to be, um, you know, a presentation where a bunch of people just sat there, probably, you know, in a hot room and, and listened to a public servant talk for two hours. So we're going to have five or six tables set up. Um, they will all be staffed uh, by a representative from our agency. So 
we just want you to come down and have a conversation with us. We'll have some maps that you can scratch on, um, you know, showing us some of your favorite spots in the community where you think we need to draw our attention to um, and just trying to understand what your vision is for the future of the community. Uh, and we will have translators on site as well um, for Spanish and Mandarin speakers. When you look at the just kind of raw assets, Noah, not, not including um, what the stakeholders in the community think about, what are some of the, whether it's streets mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, the river itself, what are some of the assets that you've paid attention to? Well, I mean, you, we start by going back, right? Uh, the history of these communities, um, you know, when you, when you sort of think about the proximity to the stockyards um, in a really strong, you know, Irish traditions that are here, uh, combined with the current cultural diversity, this is one of the most diverse communities um, in the city of Chicago. You have a huge Latino population, a huge Chinese population as well. And those are some cultural advantages that it's really, really hard to find. And you can't really set that up. They just kind of happen. Um, you talked a little bit about the river. That's a huge asset as well. We can't really move those, although we can change the flow if we try hard enough. Um, Paul Masano. Yeah, St. Louis. <laughs> um, Paul is amazing. It's one of my favorite um, open spaces in the city. Um, it, it's pretty cool to think about, you know, spending an afternoon there fishing, and then you can have really, really authentic Chinese food across the street. Um, Morgan Avenue out here and all the cultural institutions, the art centers that are here, um, you know, the new boathouse where we're having this event. Those are some some really cool things that you don't find anywhere else as well. So um, I've also noticed working on this plan that there's just a pride that these communities, Bridgeport and Canaryville, have that you don't really see anywhere else. Um, it's It's really cool to see. It's really cool to be a part of. And I think everybody will have their own list of things that make this community a strong asset. And that's what we're excited to find out as well. Um, you know, it's really pretty well served by transportation. We always talk about that as as urban planners as well. Um, you know, you got your bus lines. The, the orange and the red lines are right here as well. So it's a it's a very well located community with a bright future. I think. What have community members brought up as concerns to you? I know that uh, during the last meeting, the Richard Daly uh, Library was brought up quite a bit as a perhaps underutilized space, and I know that there were some concerns from community members about the sense that Bridgeport and Canaryville, um, I wouldn't say they're on the decline, but Mm -hmm. there still is a lot of underutilized storefront space, and this is something we talk about frequently on this show. Um, There is a sense, perhaps, in the community that the community, while it has changed and become more diverse, still hasn't really utilized the full potential of what's here. Mm -hmm. Is that Were those some of the concerns that were echoed to you guys during your initial meetings here too? Yeah, I mean, we hear about the underutilized storefronts quite a bit. Um, A lot of people have ideas for what they want to do. They want to be entrepreneurs and open businesses and they want to make sure that those are going to be safe investments. Um, So we're trying to figure out how we can, you know, help make sure that those are um, there has um, also been a lot of discussion about some of those parks and open spaces that they have, making sure that those are usable facilities and that it's it's just really an open sort of process um, when people ask them, you know, what they want to use their park spaces for. Uh, as I mentioned, it's, it's, a, it's a dense city, so it's pretty rare that you can find a lot of park space. So finding ways that you can really leverage those year-round and make sure that people have opportunities. Um, people want to shop in this community as well. They don't want to leave. Um, they don't want their investments to go elsewhere. So they want to make sure that they can get all of their goods and services here within their own community. Um, and they want to stay here too. That's something that we've been 
always sort of hearing about, especially, you know, with the proximity to neighborhoods like Pilsen. Um, a lot of younger folks want to make sure that this is a community that they can stay and raise a family in and that they can, can I'm sorry, that they can continue um, to afford their homes here and, and really plant roots here. So, but again, we, uh, we expect to speak to a lot more people. So, um, you know, if you're listening and, and I'm not covering the topics that you want covered, by all means, make sure that you come uh, and let me know what's on your mind.